Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, exclusive details on Air New Zealand's plan for passengers to be vaccinated. There'll be that travel health declaration that people will need to use in order to get back into the country. Then a scathing report on the state of our mathematics education recommends big changes across the board. And Te Pāti Māori co-leader Debbie Ngāriwa-Packer on why vaccinations are lagging in her patch. Now we find ourselves trying to catch up against an, an immediacy and urgency to open borders. It's not Māori's fault. They didn't design this programme. Yes, a month and a half into the Auckland lockdown for anyone following the case numbers closely, Wednesday was a blow. So today we're reporting 45 new cases uh, of COVID-19 in the community. All are in the Auckland region. But in that press conference, we at Q&A felt the surge in community cases overshadowed some even more concerning figures. 55% of Māori have had their first dose, 29% their second. Uh, amongst Pacific people, 71% have had their first dose and 40% their second. Think about that. According to the government's own figures, by Wednesday, only 55% of eligible Māori had received their first jab. Even more reason for concern. In recent weeks, vaccination numbers have been steadily dropping across the board. Just 80% of eligible people have had their first jab or have one booked in. Vaccinations in New Zealand are at risk of stalling. We wanted to hear from Kiwis who make up that missing 20% to know what it might take from this point for them to get a jab. Now, we've been careful to not include any misinformation or provably false claims. But Fina Owen spent a few hours in Lower Hutt and Porirua speaking with unvaccinated Kiwis. What would make you go and get a vaccination? Like, what would motivate you to go and get, get jabbed? I'd like to be blind, dumb and deaf. Uh, at the end of the day, it's people's person's choice and I my choice is not to get it my I, I lost I lost my job because of not having the vaccination so really? I saw so, yeah so I didn't so what sort of work is that? Uh, that that was um in drainage and construction work and stuff well pretty much everyone in the in the company have already been vaccinated and I, I sort of just I don't really believe in it I don't believe in the vaccination and have you decided to get the vaccine no not until it becomes Stops me from being able to work or um, endangers my family. Yes, travel. What would make you get vaccinated? Like, what would what program would the government would do to you know? What would make you get vaccinated? Um, oh, they give me some money. <laughs> well, I'm not vaccinated, and I choose not to be vaccinated. Yeah, I just choose not to, and so do a lot of my family members as well. Do they? Yeah. So is there anything that the government could do to change your mind? You know, what would make you get vaccinated? If, I guess if we were forced to get vaccinated and, and, like, in a way how they say, like, you can't travel if you aren't vaccinated overseas and all that kind of stuff, which I've come to the conclusion that I'm willing to not even want to travel overseas anyway. I have thought about um, getting vaccinated, but just because just like, I've got two girls and my, my five-year-old daughter hasn't been vaccinated and my, I've got a one-year-old as well, you know, and, and I don't feel like they're safe, so why should I have to be vaccinated, you know? Well, that's how I see it. So do you know where you'd get vaccinated around here? If you yeah, yeah, just straight across the road there. At the, the Marae? Door, I think it is, yeah. There's a vaccination centre there. I literally just live up the road, but 
So, so you know where to get vaccinated and, yep. and what the process is, but it's just a no from you. Yeah. Yeah, Fina was struck, to be honest, by just how easy it was to find New Zealanders who don't want to be vaccinated. And, you know, it's important to note, these aren't just so-called anti-vaxxers. They are normal Kiwis who just feel indifferent about vaccination. But when you dig into the data, some really big disparities appear. 90%, the target that isn't a target. If you were listening closely to Q&A last week, you would have heard Chris Hipkins tell us this. So getting to 90%, the question then becomes, what does the 10% look like? Who's in that 10% who is not vaccinated? And if there are high concentration pockets of people who are unvaccinated, then that's still a really significant risk. Who's not vaccinated? Official Ministry of Health data lays out a stark disparity. 78% of eligible people over the age of 12 have received at least one jab. That includes 94% of eligible Asian people, 80% of European and others, 72% of Pacifica people and just 56% of eligible Māori. Far and away the biggest disparity is for Māori between the ages of 20 and 34. We uh, supported iwi and hapu to do specific messaging to get leaders amongst those communities to promote the vaccine and we've been doing that since April and for one reason or other it hasn't quite hit the mark. The government's Māori caucus has acknowledged mistakes in the vaccine rollout for Māori. There are all sorts of complex reasons, historic, logistical and otherwise, that Māori vaccination rates in particular are so far behind. But unless something is improved, and quickly, this is shaping up as one of the biggest challenges in New Zealand's COVID response. Yeah, just pause for a moment and think about the scenarios from here. Scenario one, if Māori and Pacifica remain well behind in vaccinations as we expose ourselves to a greater risk of COVID-19, then those groups are much more likely to get seriously ill or die. Scenario two, the government holds off opening up until Māori and Pacifica vaccination rates catch up to other ethnic groups, leading to who knows what sorts of racist sentiment plus ongoing economic and social problems. Or scenario three, a combination of the previous scenarios. The government waits a bit, but Māori and Pacifica are still vaccinated less than the general population. This morning on Q&A, we want to focus on solutions. Instead of what's gone wrong, we want to ask what we can do about it starting today. Shortly, we will speak to a frontline health worker about what's involved in a door-to-door -door vaccination campaign. But first, Daniel Hodua is a youth worker with Zeal West in Waitakere. He's 24. He's been working closely with Rangatahi in the demographics with the biggest vaccination gap. And we wanted to get him on this morning for his ideas. Kia ora, Daniel. Welcome to Q&A. If money and resources were no object, what do you think would be the best way to get young people vaccinated? Well, probably the best way to reach young people is by using other young people. Young people are not just influenced by the celebrities, by the influencers, but most of all they're, they're empowered and they're influenced by their friends. So what you'd want to do is you want to empower young people to take ownership, and so you would want them to, I would spend that resource uh, reaching out to schools, reaching out to um, where young people are, and getting them to share their stories on their social media to, as to why vaccination is so important and why other people should get vaccinated as well. So you just, you want to empower young people to lead and put them at the forefront. And, and by doing that and, and talking about where young people are, 
I think it would be naive for any of us to think that many people in those demographics are watching Q&A or watching the 6 o'clock news. Social right. media is really important, right? Right. So what's happening now is you'll, you'll find on TikTok and on Instagram, which is where young people are predominantly, that there is a lot of misinformation going out about the vaccine and about the vaccine rollout. So what I would suggest is that you need, you need the government faces that are making calls on the vaccine to jump on those spaces and break any sort of myths or misinformation from there. And you need to have people sharing their own personal stories. So it can't just be someone who's been paid to say, oh, yeah, get vaccinated, it's really important. It's got to be authentic. Yeah, that's right. So young people, a young, people, a young person knows when they're being put in a focus group and so what, what you would need to do is you would need those young people involved in those spaces to share stories about why they're getting vaccinated because that's the only way that young people are going to listen. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the other ideas that have been put forward? What would happen if in the coming months shops and businesses in New Zealand said they would only allow people to come inside if they'd been vaccinated? Uh, it's interesting because that doesn't just put out the young people that aren't getting vaccinated uh, because they're anti-vaxxers or because they're scared of needles. They, it also puts out the, the young person that, particularly the Pacifica and Māori young person that has responsibilities to their families and to their work that they can't necessarily go out for half an hour or an hour and get a vaccination. You put them out if you're, if you're restricting their, their freedoms by not getting vaccinated. It's not necessarily their fault. Do you think you would encourage them to get vaccinated though, if that was the case? Yeah, 100%, but you've got to make it easier. Again, if there was, if resource wasn't a, an issue, then we would definitely do a door-to-door -door vaccination so that the young people that do have responsibilities to their families, who are looking after their grandparents who are sick and so on, we would be able to get them vaccinated a lot easier. It wouldn't be such a strain on, on whānau and ainga. What about financial incentives or, or other incentives for young people? If you said 25 bucks or 50 bucks or $100 if you come in and get vaccinated, how would young people react? Look, I, I don't think a young person would um, turn down the opportunity to, to, to grab some um, incentive cash. But what we also need to take into account as well is that we're not just talking about a young person promoing uh, a shoe release or promoing a celebrity. What we're asking them to do is, is to inject something into their body. And so the information needs to be very clear about what, what, what is happening to them and what they get in return. So talk to us about that a little bit more because young people, of course, were in group four for the vaccination rollout. So they've only been eligible for, a vaccin for vaccinations for the least amount of time by those group definitions in New Zealand. But are young people engaged with the pandemic response? I mean, they know there is a vaccination drive at the moment. Right. So young people do know that, there's, that there are vaccination drives, that there are vaccination centres all over the city. I think what's happening and with young people that we've worked with and spoken to, that young people just don't see where their place is in regards to, to influencing others to get the vaccine. Mm. And they just need to, again, they need to take ownership of, of what it is that they're doing so that they can influence their friends and their schools, their families to get vaccinated as well. Um, you, you talk to us about the financial incentives at an individual level. Is there some sort of structure that we could introduce for incentives among friend groups? I mean, a majority of vac uh, not vaccination rollouts. A majority of 
of things that we've seen working with young people in promo is that if you give young people a code and you get them to invite their friends and use that code once they get vaccinated, um, you give them a, a, sense, uh, a little incentive for commission. So this young person goes out, he gets his friends, he gives his friends his code, and they use that code to get vaccinated, and therefore the, the original young person um, gets some sort of reward in return. I think that majority that's what uh, people are doing for young people in other sectors, so I, I don't see why they couldn't use that in the vaccination rollout. Yeah, I like that. So it's basically like a little pyramid scheme, really, whereby if, if I was trying <laughs> to encourage you to get vaccinated, I would say, Daniel, go in and use the code Q&A is amazing. You use that code and I get a financial incentive. But you, as someone who's unvaccinated, are more likely to listen to a peer than you are to a public health official or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't necessarily need to be um, financial either. We could offer tickets to to rugby games or um, or concerts should never one roll back around, things like mm. that. A, a young person wants to feel like they're participating, that they're engaged, that they are taking ownership. I think um, we sometimes underestimate the influence that a young person has. OK, what is your message to public health officials and politicians who are watching you right now, who are, who are really concerned about the state of vaccination rates, particularly for young Māori and Pacifica? I would say that it's all good and well to to talk, to speak from the top, to speak on mainstream media, but we need more public health officials and more politicians, uh, those people that are actually making the calls on the ground, speaking and talking to young people as well. Um, a young person doesn't want to um, take or take orders or demands from people that are speaking to them from from indirect places like mm. like the media. Uh, and like other and like places such as that so what we need to do is we need to get those people in schools talking about the vaccinations but also we need to be able to simplify the language so that we're not scaring young people with uh, a, a whole lot of medical terms that they don't understand um, because I wouldn't be able to put something into my body if I didn't know how to pronounce it you know <laughs> yeah thank you so much Daniel it's a real pleasure to speak and we really appreciate you your input that is Daniel Hodua he is a youth worker with Zeal West in Waitakere. Door-to-door -door contact, just like we do with the census, has been recommended by public health workers as the final option for boosting vaccination rates among hard-to-reach groups. But how will that work, and what do we need to do to get it underway and at scale? Dr Api Talimaitonga is a GP on the COVID-19 Pacific Response team, friend of the show. Kia ora, Api, great to be with you once again. How would a door-to-door -door campaign work? Bulovinaka Jack and happy Fijian Language Week. It would work really well because you do it as part of a relationship building exercise, going with social workers, with uh, community health workers, and it's not just knocking on the door and popping a needle in the arm. It's about checking what the overcrowding looks like in the house, what the food supplies, who's lost income, connecting them with social welfare agencies in the provider space um, that can do this. And I really like what Daniel was saying. It's looking at what is the need that intergenerational um, people that live in the same house and how the young ones can really take responsibility for protecting their older relatives from getting the virus. So how do we do it? How do we start a door-to-door -door campaign if indeed that's what's going to put us up near that 90% vaccination mark? 
It's by resourcing the providers that are known into the community. This is not about, you know, someone flying in from government to show people how it's done. We have, let's say, in the Pacific provider space, community groups that have run primary care organisations, that have done housing that are known to the community. They've been around for over 20 years. They can go door to door. They speak the language and just ask what are the needs. You know, it doesn't need to be all strictly medical. It's looking at that social side of things as well. And it's that relationship uh, that they have or that they can build. And it might take two or three visits mm -hmm. before people are convinced about getting immunised. And do those organisations have the capacity? If, if resourcing wasn't a problem, if we just showered money and resources upon those community groups from Wellington on high, would they have the capacity to do this? They'll have to really uh, find the extra workforce to do it. One of the biggest things now in the Pacifica Health workforce is fatigue. People having uh, you know, to work six, seven days a week because they do their day job and then they're going to the ethnic-specific vaccination events, which just yesterday delivered 2,500 vaccinations to people in South Auckland, mainly Samoan and Tongan, but it was run by the community and supported by a Pacific provider organisation. Api, do you think if we introduce vaccine passports that would encourage more people to be vaccinated? I think it will. I think it will. If we uh, talk to people, you know, it's not just a big stick, but also continue the information. What Daniel said, explain what's in the vaccine, how it's going to work, the safety behind it. But the passports are really important. And I tell my Pacifica uh, community, a lot of our countries in the islands have said no travel to Samoa, to Fiji, to the Cooks, mm. unless you have two jabs and a negative swab. A lot of us want to go and visit Alfano back home, and so passports would be important that way. Uh, Api, I know um, th there is a, perhaps a growing sense that people are fed up with lockdowns and people are agitating for COVID restrictions to be relaxed. So imagine here for a moment that you are Prime Minister or you are Director General of Health, you've got a blank checkbook, you can do whatever you need, but the one requirement is that you boost vaccination rates among Māori and Pacifica communities as much as possible, as quickly as possible. What do you do? I love what Daniel had said before. You do everything. You let the community tell us how it's best done. The young people to lead the way. They, we have TikTok, we have you know, a Tongan GP, Vanisi Prescott, who can go on and encourage your community. You've got to make sure the workforce is ready and able uh, to do this. It's not just about money, it's incentivizing to say, if you come and get people vaccinated, you know, you can attend, um, I don't know, the All Blacks game or other social events that Pacifica people like to go to. We can find that, but the answers come from the community. Tēnā koe api, we always really appreciate your time. That is Dr Api Talimaitonga and happy Fijian Language Week.
After the break, Air New Zealand unveils who will and won't be allowed to leave the departure lounge. Feedback we're getting from staff and customers is, is pretty overwhelming on this. They want to feel safe. Hoki Maiti, we welcome back to Q&A. Starting on the 1st of February, Air New Zealand will require all international travellers on its planes to be vaccinated. The rule will apply to people flying in and out of New Zealand and follows a vaccine mandate for the company's customer-facing staff. I spoke with Air New Zealand CEO Greg Foran and began by asking about the vaccine requirements. You know, the feedback we're getting from staff and customers is, is pretty overwhelming on this. They want to feel safe. Uh, when they get on an Air New Zealand plane, either to leave or to come back into the country. And the other thing which I think is really important is that increasingly we're seeing other countries close their doors unless you are vaccinated. So, you know, if you want to get into Rarotonga or get into Fiji or get into the United States, you're going to need to be vaccinated. So this makes a lot of sense. You've already introduced a mandatory vaccination policy for your customer-facing staff, but can you tell us how this will work for passengers? Yes, we, we have certainly introduced one for our staff, and about 75% of our staff will, in fact, end up being vaccinated, and we think that's really important because vaccination is critical it, it's you know that's the feedback we're getting in terms of customers um, you know we've got some operational things still to work through we you know staying close to the government in terms of their travel health declaration and the digital solution so you know over the next four months and that's the time that we've got in front of us we'll work this procedure up so that you know it's as seamless as possible for customers either when they leave or when they come back Will there be exemptions available for people with medical conditions and that sort of thing? Yes, there will be, um, and uh, that's something that uh, we are announcing today, that if medically you can't take the vaccine, then, you know, um, that's going to be OK. That, that will be part of the procedures that we'll work up in terms of how we'll handle it. And we'll tie in with what appears to be, you know, the most common age limit at this stage, which is, you know, 18 years and younger won't need to be vaccinated. So, you know, we'll be sensible as we work through these procedures. I appreciate you're just in the planning stage at the moment, but is it likely from the conversations you're having with the government that you would use the government's digital vaccine passport as proof of vaccination? Yes, that is something that we're staying close to. And as I mentioned, there'll be that travel health declaration that people will need to use in order to get back into the country. We'll be linking in with that. And we also have been doing work with IATA, which is the international body for airlines, on their travel pass. And at a point in time, we would like to be able to get the APIs to get that linked in as well. But certainly staying very close to the government and their requirements. This will be your policy from February 1st of 2022. What about for domestic travellers? Well, that's really a wait and see at this stage. And, um, you know, I would say that, that as we've set about getting our staff vaccinated, and that's something that they're very keen to do, we're certainly encouraging customers as well to get vaccinated. No policies on that at the moment. Let's wait and see what develops. Increasingly, we may end up in a situation where, you know, being vaccinated is a requirement to, to get into events or, you know, particular, 
you know, activities. But let's see where this, this takes us. But is that something you're open to at the moment? Certainly. Um, and as I said, you know, once again, the, the overwhelming response mm. from staff and customers has been vaccination is a safe option. So, you know, we like to, to listen to our customers and um, that's a requirement that they're telling us about. Let's see what happens domestically. Um, you know, I'm very conscious there are a number of locations where Air New Zealand is the only available airline to, to travel to or from within New Zealand. So we need to be cognisant of that and just think this one through carefully. The Australian Government has this week announced a conditional restart to international travel. What do you think of those plans? I think it's exciting. Just the same way that I'm excited about us now starting to, you know, really spread our wings and talk about international travel. And yes, they've, they've actually brought it forward by a month. Um, you know, we maintain a state of readiness in Air New Zealand and we're very cognisant of, of maintaining that because at a point in time, these international borders are going to open and I want Air New Zealand to be there. I want us to be out travelling the world just like we were before COVID arrived. What do you think of New Zealand's COVID-19 strategy as it stands? Um, you know, look, it's a, it's a really difficult situation that we're all working through here. And I'd have to say, first of all, that my, you know, my thoughts go out to everyone who's been impacted. And, you know, Air New Zealand has been one of those businesses that's been at the forefront of sort of the impact, but so have many others. You know, we're stepping through this sensibly and carefully. We've had a wonderful domestic business, um, you know, and we've been very fortunate to have that. And, you know, we're certainly, you know, in a, in a state of lockdown here in Auckland at the moment, but we'll move our way through that. Um, and, you know, uh, this will play itself out over the next few months and I can see that, you know, at a point next year, Jack, we're going to be getting these borders opening and people are going to be able to travel overseas. Do you think the elimination strategy as it stands is sustainable? Look, Jack, that's something that, um, that probably the scientists and, and the government need to answer. My, my focus mm. is really on getting this airline up and running, concentrating on getting a terrific domestic network mm. and then getting back across to Australia, the Pacific Islands and internationally. So, so that's my focus. Let, let me ask this then, from a, from a business perspective, is the government being clear enough at the moment about its ongoing strategy for the COVID response? Yeah, look, we stay pretty close to, to the decisions that they're making and, and take the vaccination on international flights, for mm. example. You know, that's something that, that we as a business wanted to do. We listened to customers, we listened to our staff. We took it to our board and, and our board fully endorsed that. They wanted us to get on with that. And then just this last few days, we've been in dialogue with the government and, and they're also supportive of this position. But, you know, let's be clear, this is an Air New Zealand decision. And, you know, so, you know, we stay close to the government, um, understand exactly what's happening there and, and align exactly what we need to do with the airline accordingly. So um, let's talk briefly about in New Zealand's financial position. Obviously, uh, a lockdown in New Zealand's biggest city doesn't benefit you at the moment. You have more than a billion dollars in that government loan function still available if you need it. You've borrowed about $435 million, I understand, to this point. Are jobs at in New Zealand safe, do you think? Yes, they are at the moment, Jack, and that's because 
we're looking forward to getting the business restarted. Mm. Uh, you know, there's no doubt that this latest lockdown has hurt us. You know, when New Zealand goes into a lockdown, that's a pretty significant impact on Air New Zealand. That domestic business is a great business. It's a $45 million to $55 million hit. The Tasman, you know, when that goes off, that's a 20 to $25 million hit. But as you said, there's a billion dollars worth of liquidity there. And I'm looking forward over the next few months to getting the, you know, the business restarted, customers back on planes, and importantly, customers travelling overseas next year. And, and that's what this policy is about. Get vaccinated and we start to get these international planes operating, not just with cargo, but with customers. From the time frame as you understand it, when do you think would be a reasonable um, time to expect travellers to be able to travel to New Zealand without two weeks in MIQ? Well, you know, that's something that really the government will need to sort through exactly how that will play out. Mm. We're, you know, we're seeing different things happening around the world at the moment, and I, I talk to colleagues in the airline business all around the globe, and, you know, what we're seeing in Europe at the moment is things are starting to open up. Um, and actually, they're seeing some pretty robust travel within Europe. Mm. Um, you know, London is almost back to normal. Ireland opens up fully on the, I think, the 23rd of October. America's back open. Uh, you need to be vaccinated to go there. But, you know, that really starts to play itself through in November. So, you know, I'm hoping that we get into next year and at some point, ideally early on in the year, we start to see a relaxation of, of some of the MIQ requirements. But, you know, I'd stress, I think a key part of that is going to be getting vaccinated. Absolutely. I've got to say, Greg, you are, you are striking an optimistic tone for us this morning. Can I ask, where do you see your business a year from now, best case scenario, I know you had been planning a direct route from Auckland to New York, for example, before COVID-19 struck, routes to from Auckland to Tokyo. Um, yeah, look, um, I, I can tell you, Jack, I am very keen to, to get this business back flying, not just domestically, but internationally. And, you know, we've been working hard over the last 600 plus days while we've been dealing with COVID to make this a reality. So, you know, I'd expect by this time next year, nearly all of our international routes will be operating. Now, you know, whether they're operating at 100%, I think fundamentally that will be determined by the degree of MIQ that's required. But I can tell you one thing, there is no doubt in my mind that customers do want to get back overseas and travel. And I'm seeing that right around the world. You know, when they relaxed the, the, the situation in America, um, I can tell you that many of the airlines that I speak to there, whether it's Delta, whether it's American, whether it's Virgin Atlantic, they saw an immediate surge in bookings. You know, people do want to travel. They do need to be vaccinated. You're going to need to be vaccinated to get into many countries. Mm. But I am optimistic about where the business is going to go. And, you know, we're planned and, and ready to do that. It's New Zealand CEO Greg Foran. Coming up on Q&A, an expert panel from the Royal Society Te Aparangi has this morning published a scathing report on the state of New Zealand maths education. Big changes could be coming for students and teachers alike. Hoki mighty, we welcome back. 
As we explained at the beginning of the show, vaccination rates for eligible Māori are more than 20 percentage points behind the general population. TVNZ political reporter Mikey Sherman sat down with the co-leader of Te Pāti Māori, Debbie Ngārewa Packer, and started by asking about plans to relax COVID-19 restrictions. These are the communities who have been you know, on the front line, who are making up most of the health providers, who are essential workers. And we have to get that right first before we have any discussion on moving to opening up Aotearoa. National has said, though, that it will prioritise vaccination for Māori and for South Auckland. That's more than the government's done. Yeah, but we're talking about a party that can barely get its leadership together. It's never run a COVID response. Um, and to be quite honest, if it did, we would probably have been in a hell of a lot worse position than we are. I've, you know, I'm critical of aspects of the government's performance in an equity space, but we as a party are totally supportive of their health-first response. And you know, that's, that's never been a national's um, sights. Just on vaccinations, Associate Health Minister Penny Henare, is he right when he says ultimately the buck stops with Māori? No, he's, you know, this is, this is probably one of the things that I will pick up the government on. You know, first of all, there, there hasn't been a really strong Māori COVID response. There have been inequities all the way through. They um, went through a, a one-shoe-size-fits-all you know, approach with the vaccination, for example. Against the efforts and you know, advice from, again, experts like Te Rōpū Waka Kaupapa or Uruta, who said, you know, we have a, a profiled population where 70% of Māori are under 40, who went into a vaccination programme that addressed first and foremost 65 plus. So you know, we had a mismatch right from the word go. As a consequence, we find ourselves behind the ball. Uh, you know, Minister Penny uh, Hinari has been wanting in this space and, um, and has certainly been taken to task. Now we find ourselves trying to catch up against an, an immediacy and urgency to open borders. It's not Māori's fault. They didn't design this programme. And those that tried to were ignored. Is it insulting then to have the minister put the blame at the feet of Māori? It's weak and it's actually so, it shows their total disconnect with Māori and the deflecting. Stop shaming and blaming Māori for your non-performance or poor performance and work harder on how we unite on solutions to bring, you know, to flip up you know, to really flip upside down the centralised approach that Ministry of Health has all the answers. Let our rangatahi lead by rangatahi for rangatahi. Let Māori lead by Māori for Māori. And that's where they've got it wrong, all the way through. Taranaki has one of the lowest vaccination rates across the country. Mm -hmm. That's your patch. Yeah. How do you fix it? Oh, yeah, I think the first thing is it took us so long to get acceptance that this was not working. And you know, we've had to jump up and down as the uni you know, unity of Ngāiwi or Taranaki leadership. And I think the first thing is, is bringing to task um, all the players, the Ministry of Health, the government and Taranaki DHB, admit that they didn't know what the heck they're doing, get out of the way so that we can take the reins and pull it off. Now that's where we're at. But again, you know, the, the whole modelling, we should never have been in this deficit position. It's a deficit position created by a government that lost its, you know, lost the eye on the ball or lost, actually lost any sight of what needs to work for Māori will not necessarily be the same model that worked for non-Māori. The problem that we have is addressing that, we need to have more resourcing and parity. For example, if you look at our Whanau Water Commissioning Agency, they have massive um, efforts on the front line, but they couldn't access data to target vaccination as we saw with Ministry of Health and Home Care Medical. 
So you know, we have to give each other the same starting field and the same resourcing to be able to address the inequities the government have dropped the ball on. Let's move now to Oranga Tamariki and we've seen another scathing report out this week. A government department which you say is rotten to the core and yet today it still stands. Why? Because I think, um, to be really honest, the minister lacked courage. And one of the, the kupu that came from him is that you know, I'm going to bowl a bulldozer through. Well, it looks like he's tickled it with a feather. And the reality is, is we're now going to have to sit there and figure out how we, you know, how we deal with an agency and a review that didn't admit how it treats tangata whenua babies is wrong. What he's come out and said is, for example, you know, you will see uplifts, you know, done differently. Kauri. What we need to know is that you will never uplift a child, a tangata whenua child like that ever again. What we need to know is that the, the system is only made up of people. That you know, you, what they should have done is actually talked about when we will connect, when they will devolve to communities, and, and our community is one of them, that has been waiting on the line and um, set up. We were the same iwi that called out those um, that were advertising our babies on Trade Me for caregivers. So we've been waiting for a long time. The Māori Party has said the alternative should be a new mokopuna agency. How would that be different? Well, it would be different because it's not the same as what they've been doing in the last 19 reviews. It would be different because what it does is it restores, and I think you'll see that's our theme as a party, is actually restoring what worked. Whāngai worked. Whāngai tanga is part of our culture that really worked. And actually, you know, no mokopuna is... is um, born of wakapapa that doesn't connect. It's actually about reconnecting with safe whānau. But some of the report authors, Māori leaders like yourself, have said that starting from scratch would take too long. Yeah, it does take too long, but there actually needs to be a transition. And that was the, what, the, you know, what came out of the whole claim, is the recommendation to have a transition authority. What we have is absolutely no bridge to be able to do that. And I think in order to you know, uproot and get rid of the rot, you actually have to have a bridge that shows where you're going to go to. In fact, what we've got a review is just said, you know, we'll, we'll work with community and Māori, we'll do this. Kei te pai tera, that's actually part of what you're meant to do under Te Tariti. But you should have had something radical that proposed transformational change, such as a transitional agency or authority. Speaking of change, the One News Colmar Brunton poll asked New Zealanders what the country's name should be. 41% want Aotearoa in the mix. What does that tell you about where we're at as a nation? I think the first thing I can reflect on is that 60,000 people told us in 58 hours that they want Aotearoa change. That's 60,000 in 58 hours. And that's the Māori Party's petition. And that's the Māori Party's petition. And I think when you look at the age group, and I think that to me is a poll more than a poll run by media, and particularly um, you know, Pākehā media. And I think what we've got to remember is that, and I, say, I can't say this enough because it makes us think about how we engage and what we do and moving into TikTok spaces and things. You know, we have a generation now that it's not about justifying te tiriti or defending it. They live it. They just live it. And that's actually who we're reaching out to. There's 70% of our population under 40 for Māori. 20 plus percent are under 20, 21 years old. And we're going to have a population that are really engaged in mainstream media that will never accept it because their education background has never normalised te tiriti, Aotearoa, our true history. So I think um, it actually tells us that we're on the right path. And I guess the big question to those who don't understand or support it if, you know, not now, then when is it okay to be Aotearoa?
Would you be happy with a double-barrelled name, Aotearoa New Zealand? I think the double-barrel has been there. For us as Taranaki, and I can only draw on the experience that I've lived, um, for us as Taranaki, we tried the double-barrel, but really the way that it moved very quickly was the wairua and the ahua, the essence of Taranaki meant more than Mount Egmont. And then the affiliation that everybody is Tangata Moana, Tangata Tariti, Tangata Whenua, collectively live under the Maunga felt the essence and the connection. So I think, you know, in order to really feel something, we should restore what the name really is. Your journey in politics began well before Parliament. You led Ngāti Rua Nui in multiple court battles against seabed mining, and just this week you've had a win in the Supreme Court. What does that mean for you? Uh, it, means, it means everything. It means everything. Um, I think uh, it's still really fresh because we, uh, as Taranaki, as you know, um, particularly in South Taranaki, have never won a single battle in court when it's been about restoring our, our whenua or our, our moana. And um, I guess the whole purpose of being here was showing that the grassroots, the power of the people and their voices and their faces do matter. And we hurt on the ground when we have politicians that don't represent us and don't bat for us. Um, this was a battle that we tried to pass on to other parties and politicians to champion for us and we realised we had to do it ourselves. I think um, when you live on the ground, you often have people in big places that make big decisions for you. Then you have big companies with deep wallets that come in and, and take over where you eat and where you capture your spiritual well-being, where you play with your mukupuna. Uh, to be able to lead that battle and then learn um, how you can get let down by politicians um, was really important. It will not only keep me humble, um, but extremely focused. And to hear and feel the tears and the absolute jubilation that we in Taranaki can stop the desecration of our seas, our oceans, our moana, can stop the big goliaths that come to take us out, um, is the best feeling in the world. Kāti ake ka waihoa taua kōrero i konei, te bingarewa peka tēnā koe, thank you for joining me. Kia ora, kia ora, thank you. Te bingarewa peka with Mikey Sherman. Coming up, remember our special programme on New Zealand children's declining maths achievements? Uh, it's pretty bad. I think, in fact, it's nothing short of a national tragedy. We are failing generations of students and giving them the skills they need to, success in, to have success in uh, modern life. Now an expert report published this morning lays out what we need to do about it. An independent report into the way we teach maths has recommended sweeping changes to all levels of the education system. The report by the Royal Society Te Aparangi says students should spend a minimum of an hour a day studying maths in school until year 10. It says Kiwi students shouldn't be streamed and that the Ministry of Education should consider compulsory professional learning for primary school teachers. Distinguished Professor Gavin Martin convened the expert panel for the Royal Society Te Aparangi and he is with us this morning. Kia ora Gavin, welcome back to Q&A. How did you and the panel assess the state of our mathematics education? Uh, Moroona, Jack. Um, I think the panel looked at the evidence available, we looked all over the place, we read very many reports and I think the outcome is basically a systemic failure throughout the entire system. There's very little 
value in finger pointing. It's certainly not the teacher's fault that we're in that in the situation that we're in, um, and not too much to do with the Ministry of Education. Many of the people we spoke with in the Ministry well aware of these problems and, and keen to start addressing them. I think what we need is the political willpower to move forward. We have seen the results for New Zealand students, especially on those international tests, decline for some years now, but just how bad is it? Um, well, OK, firstly, the report is not about improving New Zealand's uh, performance in these international benchmarks and, and scores. That would be a rather futile outcome. The outcome the panel wants is to ensure that New Zealand children get the education they need and deserve to succeed in life. I mean, the evidence is pretty compelling that uh, low levels of mathematical skills lead to poor outcomes, poor job in the future, uh, poor health consequences, higher incarceration rates, all those sorts of things that we wind up paying for further down the track. And just how bad is the state of our maths education? Well, I think it needs serious and sustained attention. Talk to us about some of the causes then, not, not as a finger-pointing exercise necessarily, but why do we find ourselves in this position? Okay, I think some of the causes we identify in some of the recommendations. Um, first off, I think that uh, we need to upskill teachers so they're more confident in the mathematics they teach, perhaps more enthusiastic and many more passionate people, people passionate about mathematics. That there's no better thing than being taught by someone with a passion for the subject that they're introducing. And for that passion, you need people who are you know, highly competent in what they do and, and while there are exemplars of fantastic things going on in schools all around New Zealand, you don't run a national system by pointing to exemplars all over the place. You set up a system uh, whereby everybody can profit. So that's one thing. Other things we identified in the classroom are methodologies and, and teaching and sort of de facto streaming. Those are the sorts of things we'd like to end. Um, people, students come for the first time in their lives, maybe five years old, into schools from completely different backgrounds. And we're making decisions on their ability in mathematics because of they're born in one part of a city or another, or one part of a country or another. Uh, that's simply ridiculous. There is no reason to suppose that the ability of five-year-olds is dependent on where they're born or who their parents were or what socioeconomic status they have or even what country they live in. So those things need to be addressed. This ability streaming starting off so young, uh, that just leads nowhere. The second, the third thing, sorry, that we need to look at is leadership out of the ministry. Um, because of the structure of uh, today's schools, there's a lot of autonomy. Because of that, a plethora of sort of different materials and resources have been developed. Teachers are already very busy people. And having to select from this vast plethora of materials um, what is relevant for them, what would be useful, uh, that's a, a challenge, and some of this is evidence-based, some of this, these materials are not. Some of them are purchased by schools because, you know, a very slick salesman came along and, and they listened. 
This is not how we want things done. I think we need to be able to support teachers to make really good decisions about the materials they use and how they use them. Professor, a lot of parents feel, anecdotally perhaps, that their kids aren't taught the basics. What is your view when it comes to the teaching of basic arithmetic, times tables, rote learning in some cases? There's absolutely no doubt in anybody's mind, anybody on the panel, that all children need to know these basic facts. They need to have them at hand. They need to know them just like that. Nobody doubts that. Quite how you would learn the basics are different things. You know, rote learning works uh, maybe for even a majority of people. It worked 20 years ago when, before we started down the track of these, the numeracy project. But if you look back at our education system 20 years ago, it was drastically failing certain sectors of society. So what we learned from that was that the methodologies that we use to teach many students, while they work for many students, they don't work for all the students. So we have to develop different strategies for teaching different students in different ways. Unfortunately, the numeracy project got sidetracked, again, since there was very little central oversight in what was happening. And this idea that we adapt certain strategies to teach children from different backgrounds how to learn these basics quickly became all about teaching strategies. And that seemed to fail everybody. I'm going to read a quote here from the review. The panel is deeply concerned that universities and other teacher education providers have cut back the mathematical provision in their education degrees for teachers since 2005 by as much as 50%. Do teachers understand mathematics well enough to teach maths? Okay, so when you say teachers, you mean everybody, but there are some certainly some excellent mathematics teachers out there with great math skills. But by and large and on average, we don't think that that is necessarily the case. Um, the decline in the amount of time spent giving or upskilling teachers in mathematics through their education programs is in part because it's so difficult to attract mm. um, teachers with math skills into the program. So it's you know it's almost well yeah you know, well I, you can see what's happening well let me pick you up on that because you make two recommendations you say that uh, the ministry should consider compulsory maths professional learning in the induction period for provisionally certified primary school teachers so essentially making that maths education compulsory for new primary school teachers but also that you have named career pathways for maths education with associated remuneration so perhaps higher levels of remuneration for top-level maths teachers. Can you tell us how those two recommendations might work in practice? Um, firstly, it is very difficult to attract people with math skills and a passion for teaching into the profession. Uh, there are a number of reasons for that. Um, but teachers are very busy people. It's not the it's not the great job everybody thinks it is. You know, you you work from nine till three, and you go home and you have a couple of months holiday over summer. Teaching is not like that at all. It's a challenging profession all through the year. People with math skills have a lot of opportunities open for them, and most of those opportunities are significantly better remunerated. 
I, well, I won't bore you with the details of starting salaries for our graduates in mathematics or postgraduates in mathematics, but they're significant. Mm. So how do you attract people into, into this profession? Um, that's a challenging thing. So we're not going to get people with strong, necessarily get people with strong mathematical skills starting off and wanting to go into teaching. But that doesn't mean we can't have a very competent workforce. So this is what our recommendations are about. Getting uh, upskilling teachers in mathematics because they seem to have not very much in their training programs. Uh, and through the first years, when actually they can see what methods are working in classes and what methods are not working. So I think that there's likely to be, um, you know, really good feedback loop there while we're trying to upskill teachers that will be able to see in their own classrooms what works and and what doesn't work now you're going to remind me about the second part of your question <laughs> no yeah i think you covered that perfectly thanks kevin don't don't you worry about that before we let you go though let me ask this what role do parents play in in stopping the decline in our mathematics standards Um, well, I got a lot of feedback from parents all over the country and they are pretty disappointed by and large in, in their children's performance. Um, I think that there are a lot of issues there. I mean, you know, schools have changed over the last few decades from when parents were there. Mm. Uh, a lot more um, social problems in, in many schools. The good schools, well, good schools in, in wealthy areas are still doing as well as they ever did. But our system seems to have locked in um, a difference between the performance of kids from different mm. areas and different parts of the country and different socioeconomic levels. We just seem not to be addressing this problem. It's yeah. not an intractable problem. We must be able to solve it. And if we can't solve it, uh, as a nation, then I think we are in pretty deep problems. Yeah. Trouble. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and insights. That is Distinguished Professor Gavin Martin, who convened the expert panel for the Royal Society Te Aparangi, Te Kine o Te Atahua, Te Waiata o Nga Manu. Beautiful bird song there, eh? Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Well, we, we, we will be back after the break. Komatu, that is Q&A for this week. Next week, after the One News Colmar Brunton poll put him at second place in the preferred Prime Minister rankings, we'll have a long-form interview with Act Leader David Seymour. For now, though, thanks for watching, thanks for your messages, thanks to the Q&A team. Hey tērā wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.